All right, everyone, come to order. Come to order. Attention, attention. The psalm for the week is 147 out of the hymnal. We'll pray the psalm as we usually do for coffee break, responsibly by half verse. We sang it this morning in chapel at a double psalm tone. Our hymn is 536, One Thing's Needful. Okay. And our verse for the week, John 6:54, is on the congregation at prayer. I'm glad you're, you know, keeping your social distance. <laughs> All right, let us uh, begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food. And to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse. Nor his pleasure in the legs of man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. In those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters hoarfrost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? 
He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob. His statutes and just decrees to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his just decrees. Praise the Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. O Lord, grant us grace to ever sing your praise for all that you have done and continue to do for us, and for your holy church throughout the world. Heal the brokenhearted and bind up their wounds. Send out your word to comfort and sustain us. Teach us to fear you and to hope in your mercy, for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Going down to the catechism at the very bottom of the page, the Second question, what is the benefit of this eating and drinking? These words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins show us that in the sacrament, forgiveness of sins, life and salvation are given us through these words. For where there is forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. How can bodily eating and drinking do such great things? Certainly not just eating and drinking do these things, but the words written here, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. These words, along with the bodily eating and drinking, are the main thing in the sacrament. Whoever believes these words has exactly what they say, forgiveness of sins. Let us pray. O Lord Jesus, by your words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, you teach us to believe that in the sacrament, forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation are given us through these words. We give thanks to you for the precious gift of your body and blood. Forgive us for taking this gift for granted, for doubting your promises, and for trusting in our own merits as we approach the altar. Give us firm faith in your words that we might know with certainty that where there is forgiveness of sins in your body and blood, that there is also life and salvation for us and for all who believe in your promises. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for all of the blessings of this life. We ask your protection to Simeon Schneider, Melvin Swistowski, and Sarah Piper, celebrating baptismal birthdays this week, that they may be preserved in Christ. We give thanks to you for the birth of Abigail Jo Bender. Protect her together with her mother in body and soul and bring Abigail into your kingdom through the waters of holy baptism this Sunday. We give thanks to you for Bonnie's 90 years as a baptized child of Christ, for Gabby Hartwig's reprieve from cancer, even as she continues to undergo therapeutic treatment. We ask you to sustain Alex as he awaits serious open heart surgery.
Amy Bruss as she continues extensive recovery following a stroke. Harold Campen, who has returned home from therapy. Reverend Dwayne Schneider in assisted living. And all those in various stages of cancer treatment, Nancy Abruyeba Amaso, Jim, James, and Josiah. And finally, we ask for your comfort for the family of Ralph Fisher, our dear brother in Christ, who died February 18th. Grant them the assurance of salvation and the promise of the resurrection of the body in a blessed reunion in heaven with all those who have died in the Lord. Finally, we pray for Concordia University, Wisconsin, and Ann Arbor in these difficult times that you would deliver the institution from false doctrine and false practice, that you would bring healing according to your good and gracious will, and bless the presidential search to lead the university forward in the years to come. All this we ask through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Hymn 536. Stanzas 1, 3 through 5. One thing's needful, Lord, this treasure, teach me highly to regard. All else, though at first give pleasure, is a yoke that presses hard. Beneath it the heart is still fretting, striving, true lasting happiness ever deriving. This one thing is needful, all others are vain. I count all but loss that I Christ may obtain. Wisdom's highest, noblest treasure, Jesus is revealed in you. Let me find in you my pleasure, and my wayward will subdue. Humility there and simplicity reigning, in paths of true wisdom my steps ever training. If I learn from Jesus this knowledge divine, the blessing of heavenly wisdom is mine. Nothing have I, Christ, to offer, you alone my highest good. Nothing have I, Lord, to proffer, 
but your crimson-colored blood. Your death on the cross has death wholly defeated, and thereby my righteousness fully completed. Salvation's white raiment I there did obtain, and in them in glory with you I shall reign. Therefore you alone, my Savior, shall be all in all to me. Search my heart and my behavior, root out all hypocrisy. Through all my life's pilgrimage, God and uphold me in loving forgiveness, O oh, Jesus, enfold me. This one thing is needful, all others are vain. I count all but cross that I Christ may obtain. All right, great hymn. We'll be singing that on Saturday, as a matter of fact. Um, I don't know how much you are aware of the issues at Concordia University, Wisconsin, but um, how many of you have no knowledge whatsoever? Okay. Um, What's that? Prior to your email, I didn't know. Oh, prior to the email. Okay. Um, let's see, where shall I begin? Uh, I would say the, the um, um, last uh, May, June, I mean, President uh, Ferry uh, retired from the presidency of Concordia University, Wisconsin, and Ann Arbor. I don't know how many years ago, it's within the recent time, uh, Ann Arbor, Concordia University Ann Arbor was in financial, dire financial straits on the brink of closure. So um, Concordia University Wisconsin on much more stable financial footing, um, kind of there was a merger of the two universities under one administration and one president. So Concordia University, Wisconsin, and Ann Arbor in Michigan. So there's cross-relation there. That's just why it's C-U-W-A-A, uh, you sometimes see that. But um, so there's been a presidential search underway since the time of President Ferry's retirement, which involves the Board of Regents, the President of the South Wisconsin District, the President of the Synod, and so forth. In the context of this, the, um, the uh, Board of Regents established a uh, presidential search subcommittee, and they um, receiving names, this subcommittee uh, took it upon themselves to um, just toss out a bunch of names. I believe one John Bruss was one of those names that was chucked, your son, I think. Right. Yeah. I don't know if he was chucked. All right. But I think he now is chucked. Okay. And, and there was, come Connie, sit. There, there was um, 
that, of course, raised concerns among the other board members about why are the uh, considered to be conservative, confessional, theological pastors with advanced degrees being, you know, taken off of that. And that, that was um, part of the catalyst for a Dr. Gregory Schultz, who's a philosophy professor, to kind of uh, blow the whistle by bringing that more into public light through a series of open letters and so forth. Um, wherein he basically um, asserted that um, a segment of the Board of Regents as well as the um, faculty community at CUW is much more leaning in the direction of woke ideology. Now, what is woke ideology? You know, it's this... Um, it's, a, it's kind of a nebulous thing, but you can think of, uh, you know, uh, Colin Kaepernick and his uh, uh, kneeling during the national anthem and um, systemic racism, you know, that the big problem And, of course, um, there's oppressors and the oppressed. So the oppressors are white men. The oppressed are white women, the um, uh, oppressors are white women, the uh, oppressed are um, minority women. You, you, you get the idea, and there's something called intersectionality where um, you've got it made if you happen to be, um, let's say, a black female transvestite, you know, homosexual, whatever, then you, you are in the, such a minority group that you, you are just oppressed on all sides. Now, I'm not saying that that's what's going on to that extreme, but that whole, everything you see in society and culture that's speaking against uh, patriarchy, you know, the uh, biblical view of, of marriage and family, um, of what it is to be man, what it is to be woman, and then so a lot of the progressive type of stuff that you here going on in society today where uh, parents are denied um, their office and authority when it comes to the, the education of their children in the public school, you know. Uh, so what was the governor's race? Was it Virginia where the, you know, the governor did what uh, he, the Republican governor won over against the Democratic governor who said the parents have no business having anything to say about the school. So um, it, it's, it's, uh, there, are, there are tendencies, according to Dr. Schultz, in that direction uh, at Concordia, that progressive agenda, that woke awareness. So what you see in, when you turn on CNN and when you turn on MSNBC, and you see those things that kind of militate against traditional Christian worldview, um, you know, that's, so those concerns were raised. Um, so there were a series of open letters that he sent out throughout the fall, and then um, the, the Board of Regents um, basically at, I think it was in November, late November, 
kind of pushed reset and started over with the presidential search. Um, probably a good idea, but Dr. Schultz kept up his, ramped up his uh, rhetoric, and then now there's a publication called Christian News, um, used to be edited by Herman Otten until he died. Um, uh, and a recent article, uh, paper of Dr. Schultz was published in Christian News, and which of course gets widespread dissemination and so forth. And um, uh, last week, Friday, Dr. Schultz was suspended uh, and his email account was shut down. And then uh, on Saturday, he was informed by campus security he was not to set foot on campus. Okay, so um, that precipitated um, an electronic petition signing um, thing around the Synod. Uh, it uh, was the catalyst for professors um, elsewhere in the Synod to uh, speak out in support of Dr. Schultz. And um, uh, so the rhetoric was ramping up quite a bit. And uh, so in response to that, I had sent uh, an email to the Board of Elders and the uh, Parish Council and administrative team that I wanted to have a service of prayer and preaching for repentance and intercession for Concordia University, Wisconsin, and Ann Arbor this Saturday at 11 o'clock, okay? Um, the purpose of the service not to litigate or adjudicate uh, the situation, but to um, call for repentance and intercede humbly before the throne of grace for his, um, for his deliverance and the preservation of the university and Dr. Schultz's career and, and so forth. So um, that's the genesis of that. And um, uh, let me... Um, so I can share with you this um, is from President Willie. came out today. He actually shared it with me yesterday before he sent it out. Uh, Brothers and sisters of the South Wisconsin District, grace and peace from our Lord. Recent events at Concordia University, Wisconsin, Mequon, are causing concern in the church. Many people have weighed in on this situation, and many instances of Eighth Commandment violations have occurred. People have taken liberties to make comments and create scenarios that simply do not exist. As the ecclesiastical supervisor of the South Wisconsin District, I have responsibility for ecclesiastical supervision, counsel, care, and protection of rostered church workers at CUW in the performance of their official duties. I am actively involved with the university and all the workers of the university who are rostered in the LCMS. Uh, the administration of CUW is working with me, as is Reverend Dr. Schultz, to effectively deal with this situation in a God-pleasing manner according to the LCMS bylaws and the policies of the university. I ask you, as your president, to please put down the pitchforks and the torches 
take a deep breath and believe in the process of the church that it will work. I assure you as your district president that action is underway and movement is occurring. You will likely not see any of this happening. I want you to know that I am involved and I will assure you that I will follow this through until its end as I am able. President Harrison is involved as well and he is working with the parties as well in conjunction with me. Fidelity to the teaching of the clear and inerrant scriptures and to the Lutheran confessions is non-negotiable. If the salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? We looked at that passage last week. Even when matters of doctrine are being discussed, the Eighth Commandment is to temper Christian discourse. I request your patience. I plead for your prayers. I request, request your prayers especially for the faculty, regents, leadership, and students of our beloved CUW and South Wisconsin District. Take heart, the Lord works for uh, all for good. Your brother in Christ, Reverend Dr. John Willie. And then um, uh, from the president of the Synod, the LCMS South Wisconsin District President has responsibility for ecclesiastical supervision, council care and protection of roster church workers at COW and the performance of their official duties. The president of the synod is responsible for the ecclesiastical doctrinal supervision of the university as a whole, which is governed locally by its board of regents. Fidelity to the teaching of the clear and inerrant scriptures and to the Lutheran confessions is non-negotiable. If the salt loses its saltiness, what is it good for? Okay. The biblically informed constitution and bylaws of the synod regulate the proper handling uh, of issues of doctrine and life, as well as related disputes that arise among the institutions and ministers of the synod. These regulations serve to protect the interests of the synod's congregations in their institutions, as well as to preserve the rights and define the responsibilities of those who serve in various capacities in the synod. These regulations serve to preserve godly concord and good order in the church, and they are the appointed means to address concerns and disputes. Even when matters of doctrine are being discussed, the Eighth Commandment is to temper Christian discourse. I assure you that I, as President of Synod, am acting in accord with the serious responsibilities entrusted to me by the Synod. I request your patience. I plead for your prayers. I request your prayers, especially for the faculty, regents, leadership, students, of our beloved CUW. So that's President Matthew Harrison as much the same as President uh, Willies. So um, I'm sure that's as clear as mud to you. <laughs> Any questions that I can't answer? Could President Harrison uh, appoint someone and put him in that position? No. So, anything else there? Yes? What was the purpose of um, Dr. Schultz writing that article? Was that just to let people know what was going on, or was he... Um, well, yeah, to, to let people know and try to affect uh, change in the university and in um, uh, the presidential search to ensure that someone who is um, uh, strong and competent and courageous leader. So, um, particularly disturbing though to me is that um, I know we all like, well I don't know if we all like, but we often 
enjoy the gotchu kind of things that take place in the news media or like in, in talk radio. So on Tuesday morning in the 10 o'clock hour, uh, Dan O'Donnell and his program, um, you know, aired the whole thing. And that's, um, I, I view that, frankly, as unfortunate because it, um, I, I know there are bylaws and there are handbooks and so forth like that. But finally, in the end, Christian individuals, Christian groups, the church, Christian university ought to be asking the question, you know, what will best serve the preservation and cre creation and preservation of faith in Christ? Um, and, you know, sometimes that means that when we're passionate about something, we may be right. But as the Apostle Paul said, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, it profits me nothing. I become as a sounding gong and a clanging cymbal. You know, love is patient and kind. You know, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and never fails. That doesn't mean that there isn't such a thing as truth that needs to be confessed and defended. There is. However, um, what I'm going to be preaching on on Saturday morning is Daniel chapter 9, which was the, uh, not all of it, but portion of it from yesterday, where Daniel prays. You know, there's, there's, there's hardly a prophet that is more faithful in the Old Testament in terms of the portrayal of him. And yet he says, we have sinned. It's a stunning thing. And he goes, the history of Israel he says, we have sinned, and he talks all, and, and part of that sin was accommodating the culture of the world around us, you know. So, is what I do or what I say or what an institution does or says or what a professor or a doctor of the church does or says, is it um, going to serve the cause of the creation and promotion of faith in Christ? Uh, a corollary to that is what I'm doing, is it going to a damage the witness of the church in the world of unbelief. And, and uh, that becomes uh, a serious matter then. So that's why I said, well, what can I do? Well, I can, what I'll, I can do is preach and pray. So that's the origin of Saturday service. It is kind of interesting that... Um, I got some um, welcome encouragement and feedback from some of the other theological faculty members at uh, CUW for doing the service, as well as a few others. Cricket silence on a lot of other venues, because this went out to all of the regents and faculty members and, and um, South Wisconsin District pastors, and now um, the South Wisconsin District just sent it out in their mailing to all church workers this morning. Um, but President Willie, and this is sometimes what happens, you know, you get very close to something and then you think, no, no. So, so he uh, had grave concerns about the service and he uh, talked to me late Tuesday afternoon, but by late yesterday afternoon, he had uh, called me back and said he was 
fully supportive of it. I think he talked with President Harrison on the subject. And uh, so, and that's why they, uh, he sent out the announcement on the service. Is my point of view with respect to that is if we don't, if we can't worship, listen to the word of God and have prayer at a time of great crisis like that, then our faith is a farce, isn't it? You know, so. Petrina. Well, I, this, uh, so that's what I can do. You know, I, I'm not on the Board of Regents. Right. Uh, I'm not in the classrooms to see what's going, what's going on or to hear, you know, so, uh, nor are you. But uh, that doesn't mean that concerns about woke ideology or critical race theory uh, are not major league significant. They are and are a direct satanic assault. Well, what I should say about woke ideology and CRT is, is it is um, uh, Marxist um, in its origins and has that kind of purpose, Marxist totalitarianism, you know, the control of the, the masses and the levers of power and so forth. Since economic Marxism didn't, didn't work so well, this is this is another thing. So things like Black Lives Matter it has nothing to do with concern over uh, the sanctity of uh, the life of people of color. It has everything to do with Marxist control. But, and again, I'm not saying that it's, it's at that particular level at CUW. I'm not saying that, but it's it part of the, the concern that he is raising as part of this current um, cultural slide. So. Okay, Barry? I don't know if you want to get into this, but Randy Kirk had his reply about CUC and how they, ex I think his word was excised this woke ideology. Is that the way you took that? I, I didn't see his Oh, excised? Isn't that the word you used? I don't remember if that was the word you used, but I think he was referring to whatever was going on at CUC. What issues? I don't know if you I don't, I, I, I read those replies. I, I'm not knowing what it is. I don't think it's useful for our purposes here today. 
And, and I wasn't particularly going to talk about it today, except I figured you were in need of that. Is this service on Saturday? Is this streaming online? Yep. Oh, okay. I never heard that it was going to be. I definitely it's in the it's in the email that went out. <laughs> oh. I read it to me. Okay, reading is helpful. <laughs> All right. Last comment, Petrina. Well, that's 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 right, you know, and that's why I like at the when we celebrate the Reformation, I'm always trying to make people see what happened historically through the correct lens. You know, when I was a kid, Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the Castle Church door. It was a revolutionary thing, you know, like this beautiful door, and he's pounding these nails in, and this, you know, and it's written in German or something like that for all of the masses to see and be stirred up. That's not it at all. The castle church door was the bulletin board. It was written in Latin. The common German folk there couldn't read a word of it. It was a call for the theologians of the church to have a, a disputation on the practice of indulgences and whether or not it was salutary. So, it, but, you know, it fits in well with the American spirit, you know. And if you have a propensity to be Don Quixote, then it really gets ratcheted up as you chase after windmills. But it's not to say that the concerns are not uh, legitimate and need to be taken seriously. They do, but okay. Uh, we are in Matthew chapter 5. And last week, let's see, Can, do you remember the phrase I used with righteousness? Forgiving righteousness. Yes. And the reason I use that term forgiving righteousness is because you can use the term righteousness and a lot of people are going to think, and some of us included, as, you know, moral excellence. You know, uh, Obedience to laws and principles and commands. So Mark is more righteous than Larry because he is more of a, of a Pharisee than Larry is, you know, or something like that. So you look at righteousness that way. And when Jesus said in verse 17, do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets, I did not come to destroy but to fulfill he is holding himself up as righteous. And righteous by fulfilling the entirety of God's word. The law, the five books of Moses, the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament. And which means he's not only actively doing laws, you know, like that sense, he never committed murder, he never committed adultery or something like that. But, but the heart of the law and the prophets is God's love. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love for the neighbor, which then comes to its quintessential, its climax expression 
in his death upon the cross. That's where he fulfills the law and the prophets. For what purpose? To reconcile us to God. To bring about forgiveness of sins that restores life where there is death and so forth. So that's the forgiving righteousness. Okay? Um, St. Paul would speak of it, I want to know Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, my how successful am I at keeping the law, but having the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith, by faith in Christ. Okay? I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, which is his forgiveness, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. So we talked about in, in this Sermon on the Mount, which is so rich and we could spend days and days and days in it, that it is Christology. It really is a description of Jesus, like when we looked at the Beatitudes. But it is also ecclesiology, which is a ch the church, a description of the church, which is the body of Christ that everything he is, we receive. Okay? And that's why last week I talked about pure gospel where he says, verse 13, you're the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. That's a declarative statement of justification, really, of being declared righteous. You are the salt of the earth. What is it that the church has that the world doesn't have? Christ and his forgiving righteousness that not only covers our sin, but is that which is to enable us to live with one another within the church. Now, we have the problem of the sinful flesh, which is at evidence in this CUW controversy, or in any, there is no such thing as an individual Christian that is free of the turmoil of pharisaical self-righteousness, sin, and the struggle against the forgiving righteousness of Christ. There's no such thing as a Christian congregation wherein there is not that struggle because there are sinners and saints within the congregation. There's not, no such thing as a church body that is free of that struggle. Okay? But what Jesus is holding up, though, we see a description of him in the Sermon on the Mount, and what we are through him, by the grace of God, through faith in Christ. Okay? So I want to take us uh, into, then, the verse 17 we just read, Do not think I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. The very smallest stroke of the letters. You know? So uh, you might call it hyperbole, but it's really not because every word, every letter of the law and the prophets, Christ is the fulfillment. And then he says, and remember I had said, it asked the question, why would he say, I've not come to destroy but to fulfill? There was an accusation out there against him that the disciples would hear. What is the accusation? He's not, he's destroying the law and the prophets. Why? 
can use our phrase, because of the forgiving righteousness that he displays. It's not right to be merciful to the likes of Larry Martin. You know, the famous whipping boy, you know, but, but it's not right to eat with tax collectors and sinners. Why? They don't deserve it. They're not worthy of it. Okay? So, and this is why, what, you know, when I get this question all the time, I, every year that I've been in the ministry, why didn't the Jews believe that Jesus was the Christ? They were looking for the Christ. Why didn't they believe he was the Christ? It turns on this issue. Because he forgave sin, not on the basis of their righteousness, according to the law, but on the basis of his righteousness. Okay? And um, we like to whip on the Pharisees. And what would be one word that would describe the Pharisees? It's a hyphenated word. Self-righteous. Yeah, self-righteous. But the reality is, that is what our sinful flesh is. Our sinful flesh is self-righteous. What is the first thing you want to do when someone says, um, you did wrong here, Mark Golterman. No, I didn't. You want to defend yourself. Isn't it, isn't it true? Yeah. That is the absolute initial response. It's what I try to, to teach to have a to dare to be self-critical when you're in uh, human relations, to dare to listen. When I, to- I spoke um, to the church work students at Concordia uh, on Valentine's Day, they had a 70 church work students there in the, uh, at the Highland House. We had a, a taco bar yeah, where you, talk, you know, put all your taco goop in the shell and, you know. And they wanted me to talk about, you know, relationships with church workers. And I tried to say the biggest and most important thing is to be able to confess to another, I was wrong. I'm sorry. To have a listening ear and to dare to not immediately justify yourself. And, you know, private confession and absolution... That does not, when a, when a penitent confesses to a pastor, and a pastor hears the confession and forgives, or when a pastor goes to his confessor and confesses and is forgiven, that does not destroy trust. It actually builds trust. But it is counterintuitive for our flesh because our flesh is always, you know, taking the fig leaves and covering ourselves up. Okay? All right. So this is important because then in verse 19, Jesus says, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And this concept of least, I I like to translate it as having no standing. And the, the least of God's commandments, all of God's commandments are rooted in love. Remember, I asked the question, what is the, one of the biggest problems with believing that 
you can save yourself by your works, by your good works. Do you remember? I, I do want you to remember things I teach you. Do you remember what I said? One of the, one of the biggest problems with that? It's selfish. What must I do that I can inherit eternal life? Well, do this and do this and do this. Remember I said when I was a kid, I was taught, we can't save ourselves by our works because we can't do enough good works. But that, that frames the whole discussion in the idea of what am I going to get out of it. So I'm going to do good works to save myself. Well, I can't do enough, so I need Jesus. But really what the law says is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, even if you lose your life. Or to love your neighbor ahead of yourself, which is coming up in the Sermon on the Mount. If someone says, go one mile, go with him too. If he wants to take your tunic, give him your cloak also, or which I always forget which, which comes first. But this going the extra mile. Pray for your enemies and your persecutors. Because God causes his son to rise on the just and on the unjust which is going back to righteousness again. So whoever does and keeps the law, Jesus does and keeps the law because what he does, he does not for his own benefit. This is a radical kind of fulfillment of the law. Why did the Pharisees and why did the Pharisee in us do what we do? For our own benefit. That's, why, that's the biggest problem with works righteousness. It doesn't even come close to fulfilling the law. It's not like, I mean, I can remember these discussions in confirmation classes, you know, like 60% obedience to the law, but you still got 40% to go. You can't quite make it up to the 100%. That's not the biblical view, actually. The biblical view is what St. Paul says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. Well, then who can be saved? Only those who have the forgiving righteousness of Christ. Okay. Now, so whoever does and teaches them. So you, you break the law and you do and teach by how you then live. So the Pharisees, in the very instance of keeping the law, were breaking the law and teaching others to break the law by the self-righteous portrayal of what it was to be a good person, and so forth. Jesus did, he is greatest in the kingdom. Why? He is greatest. Whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He is great in the kingdom because he forfeits his rights, puts on the form of a servant, and is made in the likeness of sinful flesh, and dies and forgives. Okay? He shall be called great. And then that culminates... Unless your righteousness, you Pharisees, is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And the scribes and the Pharisees were thought to be the most righteous according to the law. But they weren't. The one, the one who is righteous is Christ. So what that verse 20 is saying is we must have Christ. We must be in Christ and he in us. Okay, so how do we receive this righteousness? It is by faith in Christ and by his word and sacrament he comes to us. Susan, you had a... ABD comment about the hymn this week. Attention deficit disorder comment about the hymn this week. Yes. Okay. Um, 
the least in the kingdom of heaven. Yep. And that our righteousness can be selfish if, if it's our righteousness. It's humility there and simplicity reigning. Usually we think of humility as this thing that you work for. I remember this one homeschool gathering we had where the kids were giving presentations and this girl got up and talked about how I am so humble I and know. you all need to emulate me. I know. <laughs> I thank God I'm more humble than you. <laughs> but the next to last stanza, whatever we're calling the, the number now. Okay. Um, not have I, O Christ, to offer not but be my highest good. That's the humility. I have nothing. Yeah. I have That's nothing right. to offer. I am but that crimson colored blood. Yeah. The only thing that we have, the only righteousness we have is Jesus. Yeah. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's all about that. And what happens in the Sermon on the Mount, this is the first discourse in Matthew. There's actually, this is like um, um, freeze-dried or concentrated or whatever. You, you start to add the water and then it expands. Okay? What we get in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going we're gonna to continue to see, and I'll make reference to as we go forward in um, in the gospel. And then we'll also look back on, remember the Sermon on the Mount, remember what he said here. So a lot of concepts are introduced here. This is Christology and ecclesiology put together. The doctrine of Christ and the church, which is the body of Christ, put together in the Sermon on the Mount, okay? uh, which makes it fundamentally a word of gospel to us, not law, which doesn't mean there's not law in it. We're going to see that now next. But law must be in service of the gospel. Law must be in service of the gospel. Law must be in service of the gospel. Not the gospel in service of the law. Because the gospel in service of the law turns us back inward as self-righteous, I thank God I'm more humble than you are, Pharisees. Okay? All right, so now Jesus is going to go through some of these Old Testament assertions and how they were used or misused and abused. And throughout this, it's, it's defining the, the radical difference between faith in Christ and the forgiving righteousness of God, this higher righteousness, versus the righteousness of the law. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. What commandment is that? That's the fifth commandment. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, judgment from God. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, now, what does raka mean? It actually means empty head, like dumb head. Hey, you dumb head. Shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. 
Gehenna. Okay, well, the Pharisees were righteous in their view because they've never committed the physical act of murder. But what is this condemning at its core? That murder is not simply shooting someone with a gun to death, stabbing them to death, but also includes what? Talking badly about them in the heart. Bitterness, anger, hatred, okay? That's murder, okay? So when the anger and the bitterness comes out in words, in speech, it's murder. Well, according, no wonder the Pharisees didn't like Jesus. Because it shattered the whole notion of their righteousness. Okay? Now, Dr. David Scare, who uh, my teacher on this subject, uh, he, is, he, is, uh, he makes the point that reference to like the council here and those sorts of things uh, are not literal in the sense that we should look for that today. But, it, but if but spoke of things at the time that by extension can be applied to the life of the church whenever. His point here is when you, um, when you live by this understanding of the fifth commandment that murder is only the physical act, and allow yourself to harbor resentment in the heart and hatred, you'll destroy yourself. Do you remember your, one of your favorite theologians, Richard Nixon? <laughs> you know, he, I, 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 I should have brought that in this morning. Just one of the great, greatest things he ever said was when he left office. He talked about his, his, father who was a lemon farmer. He talked about his mother and uh, no one will write books about my mother, he said. <laughs> then he said, but I guess most of you could say that. <laughs> no one will write books about your mother. But he talked about every job counting to the hilt and so forth. It was a great uh, little excursus on vocation. And then he said this. He said, uh, Others may hate you, but those who hate you never win unless you hate them, and then you destroy yourself. And, you know, the irony of that is what led him to do what he did was out of hatred. You know, and what did he do? He destroyed himself, or at least he destroyed his presidency uh, because of it. Okay. That's, that's Jesus' point here, because when you harbor this resentment, there is no salvation for you in this life or the life to come. And that's something that um, I'd like to say, okay, you've made the case, and I'll have opportunity to talk to Dr. Schultz about this, but stand down. Stand down. You've made the case. 
stand down. Because I think it's, it's, otherwise you threaten to destroy yourself and others. Okay? And that, fly, that goes against us, doesn't it? Our, our nature is, charge! We're going to defend myself at all costs. Okay. I do want to comment on the phrase, without a cause, there. Um, let's see, I, I meant to check that out on your text. Um, in, in verse 22, uh, I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause. Do you see the footnote E? And then if you go to the footnote, Matthew 5.22, N-U. Now what does that stand for? N-U are the group of manuscripts that are older, which means they're closer to the time of the original writing. You follow that? So um, remember the New Testament was not in a computer word processor. Um, every book was handwritten. That's how it was passed from church to church. So uh, you have written out notes. You're, some of you, you know, you have your, your book that I gave you, and you, that's yours to keep and to write notes in. If you were then copying the, the book for someone else, some of your notes might find their way in. Like, like maybe the phrase forgiving righteousness, where forgiving is attached to righteousness, finds its way in there. That's called an interpolation. So you can imagine in a class, if I'm, if I'm teaching you as a catechist basic entry-level Fifth Commandment stuff, you shall not murder. If your murder is not only the physical act, but it is also includes bitterness and hatred and anger in your heart, that is also murder. Um, but pastor, does that mean you can never be angry? Okay, And then the pastor might say, well, if you're a parent and little Larry is being naughty, you might be angry at, at Larry, and that's not contrary to the fifth commandment. Okay? Or there's other things you might uh, say. The, the police officer who gets angry in pursuit of the criminal and so forth, you know, according to one's office. Okay? So whoever is angry without a cause. But Jesus is not... Uh, I, I don't believe the without a cause was original to the uh, Gospel of Matthew text. Because Jesus is not interested in talking about exceptions in this chapter. He's interested about examining what is the fifth commandment really about. And it's about letting go of all bitterness and hatred. Okay, And living at peace with your neighbor. It's about smashing the Pharisees' notion of self-righteousness. Okay, does that make sense to you? Okay. But, doesn't, but doesn't make sense to why, since it's not in the oldest copies, why is it... Okay, oh, all right, all right, Thank, that's a good question. We're using the New King James, right. which is um, a translation... A, a, 
a revision of the Old King James Bible. And the Old King James, the authorized version of 1611, was, uh, it was authorized by King James. And they, they didn't have older manuscripts available. They used a body of texts that they had available uh, called uh, the majority text. And so since that was the King James and the best manuscripts at the time, that's why it's there. So it's an attempt to preserve that. Now, some, um, it doesn't mean that all old manuscripts are the most accurate either. Um, so there's a lot of things that go into, you know, examining the manuscripts and so forth. But we've got literally thousands of manuscripts. So sometimes the older reading uh, is preferred to the shorter reading. But it, it's a complicated science uh, where, where reason is not placed over the scriptures, but you're really trying to get at um, what, what is the original, what is the closest to the original. Melinda. Well, okay. Well, there's a difference. We're not talking about translation here. We're talking about uh, manuscript texts in this discussion. So it's not about, you know, without a cause is not an issue of translation. It's an issue of manuscript. Okay? And, but if you, if you look at the body of literally thousands of copies of New Testament books, ancient copies, the degree of variation is you know, something like it's less than 3%. And you're talking about from the, from the most tiniest of things. Well, it's obvious. You know, if you're a scribe and you're copying things, it's easy to make a mistake in a verb form or something like that, which doesn't mean the Bible is an error. It means the, the scribe made a mistake. Okay? Okay, so... All right. So then he goes on to say, therefore, now verses 23 through 26 are talking about how this forgiving righteousness then lets go of the bitterness that we might worship. If you, are, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So here again, he's talking about how to be governed by the mercy and the forgiving righteousness of Christ. This is an ecclesiastical situation here. That's why something like online communion is um, what the Germans called an unding. You know, it's, it's not real. Because... Holy Communion necessitates physical presence of the body of Christ in one space. You know, so that I would kneel, uh, not against Kara, but next to Kara, uh, as brother and sister in Christ, there is implicit in the Holy Communion letting go of grudges. 
implicit in there. And um, that's the posture with which we are called to, to come to the altar. Polly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so then I, I go, okay, got it. To me, it, So I would say, Carr, I'm really, have I, have I done something to okay. hurt you? Okay. I, I'm. Okay. Okay. I always thought that. Whoops. Yeah, see, that's, that's the way. Okay. And there you remember that, that Kara ticked you off. You know, you tick me off. Before I go to communion, I just want you to know how much you tick me off. You see how that inverts the whole thing. What have I done to you that, you know, riles up your flesh against me? You know, forgive me, because what is my concern? This is the forgiving righteousness. The concern of the forgiving righteousness is not to establish your own righteousness, but to preserve the other in Christ. That's why I said about this whole discussion, you know, what is it that is going to serve faith in Jesus and preserve faith in Jesus? And if that means I throw myself under the bus, so to speak, so be it. Okay? Which is counterintuitive. Again, this self-justifying, rationalizing that we all try. Yeah, I'll forgive, but they better own up to what they've done. Well, that's where, find me a passage that orders you to live that way. If Jesus didn't do that, how much less are we called to do that if we're joined to him? Do you follow? All right. Uh, so good question, Polly. I thank God I have given more good questions. <laughs> I, told, I, I teased Polly last week. I said, I looked at you last week, and there was sometimes it looked like you were, you know, your eye, you were a deer in the headlights. Like, what is he saying? And sometimes I may be, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't be shy at saying, uh, did you really mean to say that? Like on Sunday when I said, we're not against people starving to death. Well, that's... Um, okay. Any other questions there? Okay. So, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Now, what, what's that image of, it's an image of how those who live by the law will perish by the law. Which is, you know, something that I fear over the Concordia situation. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. In other words, the, the, the law, when you live by the laws of Pharisee, it will extract a, a bitter toll in this life and or in the life to come.
So isn't it interesting that right after talking about righteousness, the first topic of discussion is not merely the fifth commandment, but holding the grudge, holding on to the pound of flesh, insisting I'm going to get my just desserts. And the bottom line of this section is then to live in that is to live contrary to the forgiving righteousness of Christ and brings about destruction. So when I talk about the Sermon on the Mount as being loaded with gospel, I mean, this is, notice how the law is in service to the gospel because why is Jesus talking like this? He's talking like this for the same reason he says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Um, Apart from the forgiving righteousness of Christ, we can't stand before God nor can we live with one another. So he wants us to see the, the, the seriousness of that for the sake of faith. So here, notice I've been um, the last couple of years emphasizing a definition of repentance which fits in here. And that is repentance is the turning away from self-reliance for salvation, self-justification to reliance upon Christ alone. So it's what you see in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, where the tax collector beats his breast and says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And what does Jesus say? I tell you, that man went home justified, righteous, rather than the other, who said, I thank God I'm not like other people. Okay. Uh, I think... I think this is a good place to stop at the end of 26 then um, because the next session has to do with um, adultery. But you can see why Jesus goes to that fifth commandment, uh, how the harboring of resentment and bitterness is destructive of faith. Okay, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all.